0: Well, hello everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 142. So glad you could join me on this fine Sunday morning. We have uh, Aaron Murphys, our main guest today. She'll be here with us in about 10 minutes. Uh, but before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization, We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button, share, make sure you're subscribed, all that good stuff to make sure poetry spreads around the internet. It would be very much appreciated, so do click something right now. I'm trying to adjust the camera in the right spot. There we go. So um, we always like to start with uh, the Poetry Spawn poem. And today's poem, it, just, it made me just daydream for the longest time, just about the title itself. The title is so fascinating, and then the poem is just wonderful, too, with where it goes at the end. Um, Here's today's poet, um, Sarah Etlinger. Uh, hey, Sarah, how you doing?
1: Hi, how are you? Thank you for that. That was wonderful.
0: Yeah, it's just great to see you. So, yeah, I... Um, I am, um, you know, as a poetry editor and as a master of professional writing from USC, I should know what an intransitive verb is probably, but I didn't. <laughs> and uh, so I had to look it up. And um, the idea of love being an intransitive verb, which is a verb that doesn't take an object, is just such right. a great, I just love that concept. And then and then the poem rolled out so beautifully from that. So what, uh, what inspired this poem and, and where did you come up with that?
1: Well, so... I mean, the title came as I was writing it and I'll get to that in a minute, but actually I have a friend, Martin, and he, we worked together and we were sitting in his office and he said, Hey, you know, the thing you said, I don't know, a couple months ago about the American flag. And I was like, probably, um, and he said, I've been thinking about it. And he told me this like, sort of, he's a historian. So he was thinking about it like historically and all of that stuff and how, and we both expressed how, you know. It's been co-opted. Right. But like people feel like they own the flag and nobody else does. And all this thing, both because I'm a rhetorician. So I'm looking for those kinds of things. And he but he said some of this stuff in in the conversation. And I went back and I taught my class and I was thinking about just like that idea of that. He's been thinking about this for a long time. And I think we ultimately disagree on what we think the flag means, but I think that's his point. So to get to the the intransitive verb part, um, I think I was talking about transitive versus intransitive verbs in my poetry class to my students. So I think that like term was lodged in my head. Um, But as the poem says, you know, like I want to be a person that can can be so capacious right in the sense of like oh there's this thing i disagree with or that i have a reaction to or i don't like or is not beautiful and yet like some of us can love it anyway
0: yeah it took me back to um when i was taking classes in comparative religion and you know the idea was that um, that the, the point of all religions, no matter which one you're looking at, is to move from a self-centered consciousness to a universal center consciousness. And it occurred to me that that could be thought of as, as taking your love from an object-oriented place into a universally oriented place to make it intransitive, which is just such a cool idea. It's like the fundamental you know, basis for, for all the things we try to do is, as we grow spiritually, which, which some of us do through religion and some through poetry. Um,
1: exactly. And I am not someone who is yeah i'm like that girl who's poetry but also i mean i think like the way you know somewhere in the poem it says i want to be a person who can love others without putting myself into it and i think that's the moment that i kind of decided okay maybe i'll make this an intransitive verb as a title um because it i mean it can be and it is but also it's a poem right things don't have to line up like exactly in the world you can test out that that you know premise that claim that warrant whatever in a poem and have it not resolve it or not and I think you know that's one of the ways we can grow spiritually right in a poem in a poem to quote you so
0: yeah yeah for sure I mean I just love you know I read these poems on Saturday morning and then sometimes there's one that just makes me think all day and I love that so this is one of those Oh, uh, thank you let's hear it go ahead love is an intransitive verb I'll put it on screen and uh, why don't you go ahead Oh, you're going to put it on? Okay. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, you read your own copy, but I'm going to have it oh, for okay, the great. audience. Oh, okay, That's what I was doing. I was like, I have it on the screen.
1: Yeah. Love is an intransitive verb. He says he's been thinking about the flag and how he's come to understand it is not just the empty symbol. What he loves about it, he says, is that it can represent all of us, what the promise of America could be. He wears it on his sleeve like the badge of the patron, patron saint of lost causes. We all want to help one another. I've been thinking about him thinking about the flag. I've been thinking I want to be a person who loves the flag and loves thinking about America. I want to love so much of this misshapen and misbegotten abundance, the tattered, bug-ridden underbelly, rats in the subway, garbage dumps and rivers swollen with bacteria, the plastic and refuse that washes up on beaches as dunnage, shell hash, the bacteria that invaded my grandfather's blood, turning it septic my mother's uterine metastasis, threatening my own genes like a covenant. I want to love the politicians, the people who want to vacuum carbon emissions out of the air, the billionaires and celebrities who jet off to space instead of solving world hunger or poverty. It is easy to love when everything is beautiful. I want to be a person who can love others without putting myself into it, the way the sun embraces the world and highlights its imperfections. Here's a cracked, abandoned cement wall. Here's the withered, ancient ivy snaking up its shabby back. Here's where the thick vines ruin the view of the window, outline the jagged, stained glass so you can't see the world outside anymore. Here's where ivy grew.
0: Yeah, just a beautiful poem. I love that metaphor at the end too. The the visual there, uh, representation of the idea. Um, yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Sarah. And then, and of course, tying it into various news stories um, in the poem too to make it relevant. Um, appreciate it, and so glad you could join us this morning.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been it's been fun.
0: Yeah, yeah. Take care. Okay, yeah, that was Sarah Etlinger with uh, Love is an Intransitive Verb and uh, later in the show toward the end at the two hour mark we're going to have um, Tuesday's poet as well which is Susan Vespoli who's going to come uh, with an update um, you know all her poems if you remember from a few episodes ago maybe a month ago um, her poems are about, about the problem of homelessness and um, she has another poem up there that's going to be Tuesday's poem so she'll be joining us in about a little less than two hours um, but right now we're going to take a quick break and we're going to go to Aaron Murphy, today's poet. So I'm going to put this up and be right back in just a moment. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. As I mentioned, Aaron Murphy is today's guest. Aaron Murphy is the author and editor of 13 books, including Human Resources, forthcoming from Salmon Poetry, and Taxonomy is her newest book, which is right here, a collection of demi sonnets, a form she devised. Uh, this is just out from uh, Word Poetry. Um, she's also the author of Assisted Living and a whole bunch of other books. Her um, most recent edited anthologies are Body of Truth, a collection of narrative medicine essays, and Creating Nonfiction, uh, both of which won gold medals in the Forward Indies Book of the Year Awards. She's a professor of English and creative writing at Pen- the Pennsylvania State University, Altoona College, where she has received the Athleen J. Steer Teaching Award and Grace D. Long Faculty Excellence Award, and the University-wide Alumni Award for Excellence in Teaching. She also serves as Poetry Editor of the Somerset Review, which we'll talk about a little bit. And coincidentally, she's also um, roommates or next-door neighbors to um, Todd Davis, who was the guest just a couple of weeks ago. So I didn't even know that. But, uh,
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's he's got the office a couple of doors down, but he's yeah. also a good friend.
0: Yeah, and um, yeah, and uh, it's interesting. I mean, I had no idea that... that you both, the, Altoona seems like a great place. I mean, first of all, I had no idea, but yeah. um, it does seem we, like a wonderful college of environment. Those,
2: yeah, I was one of those ignorant people who thought that Philadelphia was Pennsylvania until I came to Pennsylvania. And it's so huge. And um, there there's so many really interesting cities in and Altoona is one of them. And we also just have a phenomenal creative writing um, faculty at our college. We have five full-time creative uh, writing faculty, which is amazing, considering, you know, we have got a little over 3000 students. So um, yeah, I'm lucky to have Todd as one of my colleagues.
0: Yeah, it just seems like such a great place to be. And the you know, I love that rural that Pennsylvania area with all the hills and every valleys everywhere. It's just so beautiful, especially in so green, you know, compared to California. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, so your new book is taxonomy. So do you want to start out reading a poem from that? Or what did you want to read first?
2: Well, I was thinking um, I would love to read uh, The Internet of Things, which is a poem that won uh, this year's Rattle's Poetry Award, People's Choice Award. Um, and so um, I wanted to thank all of the Rattle readers who uh, voted for The Internet of Things and wanted to share that uh, poem first if that's okay
0: yeah for sure and I just realized I didn't put that in the bio I should have put that in your bio that you were aware, uh, of course <laughs> of the uh, of the Reader's Choice Award for last year's Rattle Poetry Prize trust
2: me that will go in all of my bios <laughs> from now on
0: <laughs> yeah I am um, I thought I had and added maybe it, my tombstone
2: not. I mean I'm pretty sure I'm gonna put that everywhere <laughs> t-shirts tattoo <laughs>
0: <laughs> well great yeah. let's hear this poem I'm then we'll great. talk about it a little bit too
2: yeah that was a great honor uh, so the poem is the internet of things and for those Of you um, who aren't familiar with it, it's an economics term, and I have an epigraph uh, with the definition. Noun, the networking capability that allows information to be sent and received by objects and devices. The Internet of Things. The low tide riverbed silt of things. The cloud swept distant hill of things. The open bedroom window in spring of things. The moonlit cricket symphony of things. The pitter-patter tin roof rain of things. The 50-year marriage loose skin of things. The clipped winter light of things. The stippled lymph node of things. The grief. Oh, the grief, the brief ecstatic flight of things.
0: Yeah, just a beautiful poem. And, and what everybody loved was the music of that. Just the 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 way the rhymes work through, and the way it opens up through you know deeper reading. Um, and it struck me too, reading it now after having just read taxonomies, that it's a kind of taxonomy too, even though it's not a demi sonnet. So um, for, for right. people who don't know what a taxonomy is, a taxonomy is like a. Like a categorations categorization scheme, I guess you would say, right? Um, and um, and that kind of is. I mean, it kind of you know. So so, what was it? How did this poem come to be? First of all, and and why wasn't it a taxonomy? And why wasn't it a demi sonnet?
2: Yeah. So those are two good questions. Um, this poem came to me from two places. One was I kept encountering uh, this phrase, "the Internet of Things," in in the news, um, and I. I just thought it was such an interesting phrase to use because it's sort of encompassing everything but also saying nothing at the same time. And um, at the same time, I have I, I have two administrative roles at my college. Uh, I am chair of our English um, program, but I also uh, help faculty through the promotion and tenure process. And one of my colleagues in physics, uh, had written in his narrative statement for his promotion about his work in the Internet of Things. And so right at the same time, I'd been seeing the word around a lot. I read that. And uh, it was maybe one of the few times when administrative work actually led to a poem <laughs> <laughs> rather than squelching you know, poetry altogether. And um, so I just started thinking about, well, what's the sort of equivalent of that, or maybe the antithesis of that, you know, in our own, in our lives, in everyday Mm -hmm. uh, life. And um, so that's where that came from. But you're right, it is sort of a taxonomy. It's a catalog poem. You Mm -hmm. know, it's a a catalog of different things that relate back uh, to that original inspiration. And for me, catalog poems, whenever I read them, I feel almost like I'm watching like a gymnast in the Olympics and you're like, you know, is she going to stick the landing? Because endings are the big challenge, right? In a catalog poem, like how do you how do you keep from it being just a list? How does it become more than that list? Um, and when I'm writing them, I feel that same sort of suspense, you know, <laughs> will, will I be able to go somewhere different with it? And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, right? In this case, it was um, that movement to first illness, the hint of illness and then grief mm-hmm. um, that helped me kind of pivot from just a list to something more and help, helped it open up more. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it is similar. The, the, ta- the taxonomy poems are sort of micro versions maybe
0: um, of this, yeah, yeah, it's interesting too because you mentioned how important the ending is and your form that you invented. And and I think three of your books are demi sonnets or just mm-hmm. two, three, um, three, yes, yeah. It's so you know a demi sonnet would be like a half sonnet because demi means half, so it's seven lines. And then the 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 feature of it is that there's a rhyme at the end. The end has a rhyme somewhere that's kind of hidden a lot of times. Like sometimes mm-hmm. it's the same line, sometimes it's like three lines up in the middle um you don't really know where the rhyme is going to come from but there's always ends with a rhyme and and that's a way that you stick the landing too which is interesting so talking about that sticking the landing feeling the internet of things does and these sonnets do um can you explain that form and, and how that form came to be um because uh, you know it's got its own wikipedia page i noticed the demisonnet <laughs> so um so i don't know like when did you conceive of that and like why how did that come to be and, and just say more about the form itself
1: yeah, sure, I
2: will. Um, yeah, I love that, that uh, you made that connection with the stick, the landing, too, because I, I think that that's true. That is part of the form. So, um, you know, it basically has the the two rules, uh, the, the seven lines and either a near rhyme um, or a full rhyme at the end. And like you said, the rhyme can be kind of hidden. I developed it um, about 12 years ago, um, 2010. I wrote... What I wasn't calling a demi-sonnet at the time, I wrote a few of these little seven-line poems, and I thought, "Oh, this will be a series of three. Then it'll be a series of five. Oh, maybe it's twelve. You know." And the next thing I knew, I'd written 120 of them, and then uh, stuck them in a drawer for about six months because you know how it is. Eh, You know, maybe this isn't anything. But when I came back to it six months later, I I pared it down to about eighty. And that became my first collection of demi-sonnets. It's called Word Problems. And um, I found that in the process of writing them, uh, when I wrote that initial 120, that it ended up feeling a lot like when you're learning a foreign language and you start dreaming in the foreign language. I was dreaming in demi-sonnets. (laughs) And everything I encountered in my day became potential material for a demi-sonnet. And each subsequent collection I've done, so Taxonomies is my third collection of Demi Sonnets, um, has felt the same way that it's very immersive um, and whatever it is that is my focus. So, my second collection of Demi Sonnets was Assisted Living, came out in uh, 2018, won the um, Brick Road Poetry Press Prize. And those are poems about caregiving. Um, And the last section has to do with my late mother-in-law who lived to be 99 years old. She was a retired concert pianist. And so everything in that collection kind of revolved around this idea of the life cycle and then end of life and caregiving. And then taxonomies, as you mentioned, has to do with this idea of scientific classification, but these poems classify things you don't normally think of classifying, right? Mm -hmm. Elements of the human experience. Uh, So that's a little bit about the form. Um, They're kind of addictive, Mm -hmm. I find. They're addictive to write.
0: Yeah, it's it's true. It's cool. It's almost like um, you know the way the haiku community sort of you know because they're sort of epigrammatic and short. Mm -hmm. It's it's not that hard probably to write one a day, right? And and so it's like
2: it's hard and not hard. You know, it's one (laughs) of those things where you can Mm -hmm. feel like you have a draft. You know, in a single setting. It's the idea for it that you can be sort of dwelling on for a long time,
0: yeah, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, before but you so, get to it. so I, I think same with
2: haiku. It,
0: how it like yeah. informs, you know, it can form your experience of just regular life because it because you're always like looking for some thing to like get a hook in that can become one of those sonnets. Whereas you know if you Definitely. if you're thinking in terms of epic, expansive, long poems, you're sort of you know it doesn't really have that aspect where it like regulates your day through poetry. So it's a similar yeah. kind of feel.
2: No, you're right. And I write really long poems, too. Um, so it's it's nice to be able to commute back and forth between the two. And I do find that having a shorter form helps me uh, to always be writing something even during the semester when I'm teaching or doing my administrative roles, you know, I can kind of dip in um, to the demi-sonnet form and it keeps that part of my brain working. Yeah. Uh,
0: do you want to read a couple of those since we've been talking I, about them?
2: Absolutely. Um, so I thought I'd start with um, a poem called Taxonomy of Cell Phones, which is on page 31.
0: Thanks for remembering to say that.
2: <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, it's interesting when I talk to my students, I'll, I'll, I'll tell a story. So um, when I was in high school, a couple of students um, went out. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and they went out in, when there was a flood in the James River. And they got caught um, and disappeared. No one could find them for a while Well, they were actually stranded in a tree um, and their boat, you know, drifted away. They were stranded in a tree and they got rescued by a helicopter. And it was, it was a big deal in the 1980s. And when I've told my current students or recent students about that, they say, well, why didn't they call their parents on their cell phones? <laughs> and I say, well, we didn't have cell phones. <laughs> well, I'm sure they wish they did. <laughs> they did not. They were fine. They were rescued. They were fine. Um, but uh, so this this poem is called Taxonomy of Cell Phones. In 1990 BC, before cells, I chatted with a stranger in a laundromat. We've been friends ever since. Now a communication device keeps people from talking to each other. Our faces half a glow in the screen eclipse. We cradle phones like baby birds who've slipped from the nest, feed them from our fingertips.
0: Yeah, and that's a great example just of the form itself. Uh, you can see the the fingertips and the eclipse rhyme, which is hidden right. way back there. Um, and that's the, sort of the, the general... It's so interesting to to have this kind of trajectory for every poem, too. Like, you know, um, you know the arc of, of where it's headed. You know, that the length of time you're going to have to sit with this idea. And um, it's a cool experience reading all the poems. Um, let, let's do another one since they're short. We should probably do two at okay. a
2: Yeah, we'll do. So on page 80 is the, uh, the Taxonomy of Spills can find it
3: here.
2: Taxonomy of spills. Milk, but don't cry over it. Black opal ooze of oil, birds trapped in slick straight jackets. What's the phrase for saying too much spilled his heart? No, as if truth is violence spilled his guts. Guns kill 100 souls a day. We are all slipping on sidewalks thick with blood.
0: There's Taxonomy of Spills. Again, this is the book Taxonomy. Uh, new poems by Aaron Murphy. Uh, new demi sonnets, I should say. And that's from Word Poetry. Um so so Aaron how did you come into poetry I'm always curious about that like how how long have you been writing and, and what was it that drew you um and what was your you know what's your progression been like as a poet
2: Well um I always knew I wanted to be a writer as far back as second grade when um I checked out a really fat book from the school library and it happened to be the autobiography of Louise May Alcott and I was just so proud of myself for reading this 200 page book and I said well I'm going to be a writer And I think it's really interesting. Now, looking back on that, my mom's a high school uh, English teacher and um, we have a pretty small extended family and out of 12 of us, nine of us were English majors, (laughs) but everybody's doing something a little different with it. But she was a, a high school English teacher. And so we always had a lot of books, but she was the first in her family to go to college and You know, she always says at the time she was given like basically three or four choices. It's like you can be a teacher, you can be a nurse, you can be a secretary. And then flight attendant was always one of the things, you know, that was was thrown out there. And I think it's so interesting that uh, only one generation later with me, um, when I said I wanted to be a writer, that was completely fine with her. Hmm. You know, she never tried to convince me to, you know, do something, quote unquote, practical. And yet everybody else, when I would mention it, starting in second grade, would say, "Oh, that's really funny, but you know, how are you gonna make a living?" Um, what I thought I was going to do was write fiction, and um, also in second grade, uh, you know, wrote just a brilliant short story about a horse that could play the piano. Um, and then all the way until high school, I really thought maybe fiction would be my thing, or at least prose. And um, part of that, I think, was because so many of the poets we read, in junior high and high school are these, you know, it's the canon of dead white guys, the poems themselves, the way they're taught in school often feel like, you know, they're puzzles that only the teacher knows how to solve. And they felt exclusive uh, that way. And also a little boring.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so at one point my mother gave me a uh, uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti's Coney Island of mind. And I thought, wow, so People write poems that kind of sound like the way we speak. That's interesting. That was really a first. Um, So that's sort of the easy answer. But a more complicated answer to that is that going all the way back to elementary school, I think there were other things that I didn't realize at the time were in the sort of poetry family for me. So uh, my mother, as a high school uh, English teacher, also would moonlight as a bartender And one night a local DJ uh, was getting rid of, I guess they were changing formats to eight track, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it's really (laughs) the new thing. And so he was getting rid of, rid of this like oil drum full of 45 records. Um, And she said, Hey, I think my daughter would like them. And she brought them home. And I remember like just going through and listening to these records. I was in about fourth grade and like radar love. Like, that song, like, just really spoke to me. I remember playing that every morning before fourth grade. i play Radar Love. A lot of the Beatles uh, songs, same. Um, And I think I was really hearing the poetry in that without thinking of it as poetry. And then the other thing was, um, we had some stand-up comedy albums. Um, So Flip Wilson was really big, you Mm -hmm. know, in the early 70s. I remember listening to that album over and over again. And I think... uh, The comedy and the timing um, and how, you know, the economy of language um, used in stand-up comedy, I think both of those things ended up really influencing me. Um, By the time I got to, was applying to college, I knew I wanted to do poetry. I went to uh, Washington College, a small liberal arts college on the eastern shore of Maryland, which has an incredible endowment for bringing in um, visiting writers. And so I got to meet some amazing writers uh, during that period, including uh, James Tate. um, And that ended up influencing my decision to go to UMass for um, my MFA and to work with Jim Tate, um, who became my thesis advisor. So that kind of was the trajectory. But it's only kind of in looking back that I realized there was some poetry early on that I didn't necessarily think of in that genre. Mm -hmm. um, But that kind of got me going.
0: Yeah. So since we're talking about that, I mean, what do you feel like? Like, what's the difference between poetry and fiction and and stand up comedy? I mean, like, like what makes poetry like a different art completely? Do you know what I mean? Um, you know, because they all, you know, obviously poems have line breaks usually, and we we say them in a little different, more musical way. But, um, but, right. but, what's really the difference? Do you have a con- what's your conception of that?
2: Yeah, it's interesting that you ask that because this is something that comes up in my classes a lot because I also write and teach creative nonfiction. And for me, creative nonfiction is really, you know, it's, it uses the elements of both, you know, fiction and poetry writing. So you have the the imagery um, that you have with poetry and a lot of the poetic elements, but then uh, you also have some of that storytelling and character development and even dialogue, et cetera, that you, that you have from fiction. Um, and sometimes my students will say, well, why does it matter that we label these things? Mm-hmm. And I have to agree with them a lot of times. And and my daughter who, you know, when she was younger got forced to come to a lot of poetry readings, poor thing. (laughs) It's probably the reason she's the one (laughs) non-English major in the family. (laughs) But uh, anyway, she would say, if you hadn't told me that was an essay after I'd read an essay, if you hadn't told me that was an essay, I would have thought it was a poem. And so does it matter that we have these different designations for the genres one of the things that I say to my uh, creative nonfiction students is that in that case, I think it is important because those are that is uh, the one of the genres where it is supposed to be true to life. Right. And I think because you might have an ending that is based on something that actually happened, not sort of you know, any possibility of what could happen. It does change, I think, your orientation to the piece when you know that mm-hmm. and your expectation for the piece. Um, but I also have to agree with the students, you know, in and, and, and some ways it, it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, what matters is how the piece holds up on its own.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think, um, you know, I would say, you know, speaking of taxonomies, I mean, we have, we have categories for things when they're useful. So there's something useful about the distinction. Um, to me, it's always sort of where the, the piece of writing lives if it's like more in your body or like in your mind, I think that's mm, the distinction that's I always make way
2: to, Yeah, because you know, poetry way is so
0: embodied. Like it's like the voice and the breath and the rhythms of movement and the heartbeat and the, you know, iambics and things like that. And, um, and pro is just, I mean, but, but then there's the, the whole overlap, you know, like anything right. like so many categories overlap, like is an El Camino, a car or a truck, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. So, and then those, those areas, like someone mentioned in the chat already, Martha Deed mentions James Tate, who's kind of a, a groundbreaking influence in b- blending those two together. Um, and yeah, it's it just the way we categorize things is always interesting and you can't help yeah. think about that after looking at taxonomies.
2: What Jim Tate really uh, taught me, and it was great to learn this early on, was that poems can be funny. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times, and it's so interesting, if you read a funny poem at a a reading, um, sometimes people don't know if it's okay to laugh. Like they they feel like you know poetry needs to be something really serious. And I've gotten increasingly interested in this idea of the range of emotion and tone in a single poem, so that you can have something you know really serious, but you can also have you know humor um you know in the same poem that there's a poem that maybe i could read that kind of demonstrates yeah, that, that. would that be perfect. okay yeah. mm-hmm. um so it's called um debriefing a poem in parts it's a a slightly longer poem um i think you might have that yeah i
0: have it here I okay
2: so there's one thing i need to explain about this poem and that is that uh there are a few sections that use actual military terms, uh, and I define them. And so each section is called language redeployment. The other thing I should mention is that at the heart of this poem is an experience that I had with a former student of mine that, you know, probably was the most um, meaningful experience that I've ever had uh, with a student. So it's called debriefing a poem in parts. I should um, mention, uh, I was very honored to have this win the Normal School Poetry Prize, Nick Flynn um, was judging that. One, My Left Leg. My left leg struts up the street in search of a full bodied cup of cardamom coffee in a cafe where men in snug trousers talk with their eyebrows. My left leg lingers by grilled kebabs and blood red pomegranate juice, by vendors unscrolling grates for late night shoppers. On a candlelit veranda overlooking the Tigris, you'll find my leg engaged in a cutthroat game of backgammon or caught up in the rapid fire ticks of domino tiles. My leg sits in Haraya Square with lovers who lick each other's ice cream cones as if they're kissing. My left leg has no idea what it's missing. Two, language redeployment, beach party. Noun, a task organization charged with facilitating the landing and movement off the beaches of troops, equipment, and supplies three six alternative uses for tampons squeegees for dusty night vision goggles nerf darts for slow days on rooftop patrol ornaments for christmas cacti toys for flea bitten alley cats makeshift spoons for mres plugs for bullet wounds four Language redeployment, early spring. Noun, an anti-reconnaissance satellite weapon system. Five, at the reading. I am sitting. I am sitting at a poetry reading. I am sitting at a poetry reading beside my student. I am sitting at a poetry reading beside my student, an Iraq war veteran. I am sitting at a poetry reading beside my student, an Iraq War veteran, who lost his leg. I am sitting at a poetry reading beside my student, an Iraq War veteran, who lost his leg, and we are listening to another veteran read his poems about the war. My student is turning pages in his book, following along with each poem. My student is turning pages in his book, following along. My student is turning pages in his book. My student is turning pages. My student is turning. My student is turning. Mortar, the poet says. Mortar, the poet says, and I think of my student. Mortar, the poet says, and I think of my student, thinking of his father. Mortar the poet says, and I think of my student thinking of his father smashing his fist on the kitchen table at 2 a.m. I think of my student. I think of my. I think of what I think is mine, of what is his. Mortar, the poet says, and I think of how close it is to mortal. Mortar, the poet says, and I think of how close it is. Six, language redeployment, free play. Noun, an exercise to test the capabilities of forces under wartime conditions. Seven, if you are reading this. If you are reading this, I wish I could hit rewind. If you are reading this, I guess it was a one-way trip. If you are reading this, mom, don't be sad. If you are reading this, dad, take care of mom. If you are reading this, I have one request, bagpipes and amazing grace. Okay, that's two. If you are reading this, Jake, you can have my truck, but don't ride the clutch cause I'm watching you. If you are reading this, it was my time to go. If you are reading this, you already know.
0: Yeah, it's a very, very touching poem. Um- and that was uh, debriefing a poem in parts, um, and is that is that from a book or is that?
2: Yes, so that is from my uh, collection, Distant Glitter. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the reasons I wanted to share that at that po- at that point is that it's it's a very heavy poem, right? But then it also has some has some little moments of humor, you know, the what people are using tampons for, and these sort of last letters uh, that people would write before going off um, to serve um, in war, um, and and that really interests me how you can have that range of tone that you don't have to hit the same note all the time. Um, and Jim Tate was always really great at that mm-hmm. um, and doing that in his work, um, and I I. I think I'd like that about work that I read because isn't that the way our lives go, right? You can be in the middle of the most you know horrible situation in your life, but sometimes you'll you'll have this little glimmer of humor or something amusing will happen. Sometimes it's the dark humor you know that that keeps you going. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in trying to recreate that um, in in poetry and also in my creative nonfiction.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, you know, the interplay of those two and how the one mode sort of makes the other mode stronger in, in a poem like that, you know, where the, you know, the contrast can play off each other. Um, there's a great essay about the the humor that I love by Kay Ryan. Uh, it's like, I can't remember what it's called exactly, but she talks about the ah and the aha being yeah. a, a similar source, um, you know, because they're both like involuntary bodily reactions to some kind of like spark in the mind. And, um, and, and so, and they really do. That's the, the way, you know, it's the way, the way humor works is that, that there's some kind of connection that we didn't know we knew or weren't ready for. And then all of a sudden, like, bam, it's like there and it hits us. And then, and that's the same way at the end of a poem or, or when something, you know, really striking happens in a poem, it hits us too. In a right. it's a
2: both. They're way. both a kind of resonance, right? Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Exactly. So mm-hmm. it's cool to see that and cool to see you playing with that. Um, the other thing that, that that poem brings up, it's cool to see the, the contrast of that with the shorter poems as well. Mm-hmm. Um, um, one of the things that was interesting reading your work is that, um, you know, a lot of times poets feel like, um, you know, autobiography is really important. And there's a way that your poems manage to like, you know, like you don't have to write just about your life and like that's it, you know, like you, your own perspective is in there in all these poems. But there's a distance too, and like an a more in an observer quality. Um, and and this is a good example of that too, where you're sort of there and and not at the same time. Like it could be anybody, um, as mm-hmm. opposed to being mm-hmm. autobiographical. Um, right. Kind of just talk yeah. a little bit about that. Like why why is it that that you're drawn to that and. Yeah, that's
2: very perceptive, Tim. Um, I, I'm, a, you know, I just have to say I'm amazed that you read what about 150 books of poetry a year, right? <laughs> um, and I love that you don't just like obviously skin them. You you really engage with them and read them, and then you also even more impressively write um the prompt every week um at least one i've heard you read more than one sometimes so that's that's amazing uh, but that is a very perceptive observation and i think that for me one of my um things that i like to focus on i also teach is documentary poetry um, and there's you know I I like to think of that in the most inclusive terms. So poems, you know, based on actual documents, I like to think of document as noun and verb. So you're using documents, but you're also documenting something, right? Another uh, phrase for a word for documentary poetry um, is poetry of witness. But I also think of it in terms of erasure poetry, right? Where you're starting with something and and then changing that Um, anything that involves any kind of research. So, you know, debriefing a poem in parts is also, while there is some of my personal experience in there, it's also got that research, you know, research into the military terms, um, research into the veterans experience. Um, And uh, a couple of my collections, one, uh, Ancilla that came out from Omari University Press, that's a collection of documentary uh, poems. And the poems are all voiced by people who played ancillary roles in the lives of famous people. Oh,
0: interesting. So it
2: might be somebody, you know, Walt Whitman's housekeeper, for instance. Um, and they're, you know, they played, the famous people might be you know, writers, musicians, visual artists, scientists, etc. My forthcoming book that you mentioned in the introduction from Salmon Poetry is also a book of documentary poetry. It's called Human Resources. And these are poems based on labor and employment um, issues. And so uh, some are erasure poems of, um, of HR manuals um, from certain uh, corporations that will <laughs> remain nameless. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but others are persona poems um, from different people in, in um, different types of lab- labor and employment situations. I'm really fascinated by jobs that people do and the mm-hmm. work that, that people do. I'll tell you just a quick story, something that happened yesterday. So I swim every morning at our uh, local YMCA that I can walk to. And um, the past week or so, the two uh, older lifeguards, if they're listening to this, they're going to be really mad at me for calling them older. But these two older gentlemen who lifeguard, they had a surprise inspection a couple of weeks ago. And it just so happened that they had done everything right in those like hours leading up to this surprise inspection. Um, You know, the pH was exactly Mm 7.2. You know, they had just cleaned the filters, you know, all these things. And um, it it just really touched me and amazed me because they've, they've been talking about it and, and up till yesterday, like weeks later, they've been talking about it and it touched me how much pride they take in their job and in their work, you know, and they're there at five in the morning, you know, getting the pool opened. Um, I've been a lifeguard. I know those can be some long hours, mm-hmm. right? You're just sitting there watching other people not drown. <laughs> um, and I love that that they take that job so seriously and then are just so enthusiastic about talking about how well it went. It was like they'd hit the lottery, you know. Um, and so labor and employment really interests me. And so this, you know, human resources deals with that documentary poetry as well. So I, I do like to incorporate elements of that into a lot of my poems. Mm. And you could say even the taxonomy poems are sort of little nuggets sometimes, even though there's personal experience, there is sometimes that documentary um, element as well. Um, and I think that's maybe what what you are um, picking up on in your, your close reading. And I appreciate that.
0: Yeah, that's a. I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but that's exactly it. Like, and, and as, as documentaries go, like there's different kinds, you know, you can have the Ken Burns style of flat showing the pictures of what's going on, or like the Warner Herzog, where he's like injecting his whole philosophical life into somebody's like cup of coffee or whatever. And, we watched um,
2: a come on come on last night, mm-hmm. um, which is that new walking phoenix um film. Oh, and that's man. sort of a meta documentary. If anybody hasn't seen that, really worth watching. Yeah,
0: definitely. I want I love walking yeah, that's great. So I yeah. gotta see that. Yeah. Um, uh, let let's move on. We wanna make sure, um it's great talking, but we've gotta get some poems too. So let's do some Absolutely. more. Absolutely.
2: Okay. I'm gonna read a couple more from Taxonomies, um, pages seventy four and seventy five. Okay. So taxonomy of the border one. They took the children from their mothers. They ignored their cries, the children's cries, the mother's cries. They took the children from their mothers, babies in diapers, cocooned in woven senkas, girls with pink butterfly berets, boys in red Elmo shirts, children with sleep in their eyes taxonomy of the border too. They took the shoes from the children, gnawed off gummy soles with knives like whittlers on the porch of a shotgun house. They slipped laces from the throats of sneakers and boots, then handed back husks of canvas and rubber as if to say only we have the power, the power to make a noose
0: and that was Taxonomy of the Border 1 and 2 from taxonomies. Uh, I'm glad we went back to Taxonomies because I wanted to ask just a little bit more because um, <laughs> as... Most people watching have probably already guessed the prompt for next week is going to be to write a demi sonnet. So, Yay! Um, I
2: was really hoping that. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So um, you know, and I always wonder if I should do it the prompt for like this week being a demi sonnet, but then we get to hear your explanations, so that's probably right, better before we right. write them. So, so in the course of writing hundreds of these, uh, what have you found? Like, what, uh, like, what is it? Like, like what? works and what kind of turns do you make like what have you found in like the construction of it and how they function um that, that makes a sonnet work differently maybe than a longer poem
2: yeah that's a really good question um so one of the things I find that doesn't work is if I'm trying to cram too much into it the the ones that if I look back the ones that were the least successful were ones where I was kind of you would think that what might work best is to overwrite and pare it down mm-hmm. to a demi sonnet and that might work for some people that doesn't work for me as much because i find that they end up like a little too sort of overcrowded um and you don't have the kind of spare quality that i think contributes to it being kind of more aphoristic so for me they tend to be i i, I tend to write them thinking about that space um, and and the length. Um, I don't have a, a rule as far as line length or syllabic count or anything like that. Um, it's just the seven lines. And then, as I, I said before, that that uh, rhyme that can be sort of an internal rhyme, but then it, it has the end rhyme that's either full or slant. Um, but I think that what tends to happen for me when I get into the mode of writing them is that I they almost sort of write themselves in a way. You know, when I start thinking about a certain image or a certain experience um, that's going to lead to them. So I'm excited. I'm excited that uh, our listeners are going to be writing some demi sonnets next week. That's great.
0: Uh, when you mentioned uh, that that they don't have any, you know, meter or anything, do, do they strictly not, or do you write some that do have have sonnet meters?
2: When it happens, it's really accidental. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really not by design. But I do read my poems aloud a lot as I'm drafting them, um, and so I, I think rhythm is important, whether it's a regular rhythm. You know, Mm -hmm. not so much, but um, but you know, a lot of times I'll I'll think I have the right word, but maybe it's two syllables and I really just need a one-syllable word, monosyllabic word there. Um, and so rhythm will inform a lot of my decisions, as does sound. You mentioned that with the Internet of Things about, you know, a lot of the sort of assonance um throughout the poem, And, and that's really important to me too. And sometimes Sometimes that can end up generating what comes next in the poem, you know, sometimes it's less about some preconceived notion of what the poem is going to be about and more about the language itself being generative, mm-hmm. um, that, that one thing will lead to another.
0: Yeah, do you um do you play a lot in form um or or do you do you like to just go by ear? Because when I read the Internet of Things for the first time, I, I it was one of those ones where I was wondering if it was like a hidden like they have those like curginated sonnets and things like that. Right. I was right, wondering yeah. if there was like some rebroken. It feels very formal in the way that the rhyme pattern moves internally. Right, too. right, right,
1: right. right.
2: Um,
0: so I was wondering if that was just by ear, or is that um?
2: Yeah, that's by ear. I don't typically do um you know, an actual, uh, form, any kind of received form, but, um, but I do have this, I just found out this week, I have a new, um, collection of Centos that was just accepted this week from, um, Ghost River, um, Ghost City, rather, Ghost City Press. What's exciting about those is that, um, it's part of their summer series and they're free to download. Oh, um, cool. so that'll be really fun, but those are Centos and, and while it's not a form perhaps, and, and the way that you're talking about it, um, it is like an imposed structure that you're using. And for those who aren't familiar with the Cento, that's where you take lines from other, uh, typically poems, it really could be from anything, but typically um, lines from other people's poems, and then you put them together into your own poem. Um, And um, those are, I also find kind of addictive to work Mm -hmm. on and to write. And it's really fun to take things that meant one thing in this context and then it changes the meaning when you put them in the context with other lines um so that's probably the closest thing to the most to a like whole collection of absolute you know formal poems would be that that uh, little chapbook of um centos.
0: Mm-hmm. and um and centos are always interesting there there are two things that we 've published very few of that I like noticed at least um and, and it took years like two decades almost to publish a cento in rattle um finally, um who was it that has cento? Um, I can't remember, but, and then also like a, gr- a group poem too, like, like poem by oh, two yeah. poets. We, eventually we got one by Denise Duhamel, but it took a long cool. time. Um, yeah. And there's something about both where, it, I don't know, there's a, I don't know, like, like the, the, the generative aspect of it is interesting mm-hmm. in, in how hard that is to make it your own, I guess. So, so yeah. in the Cento, just since we're talking about that, how do you, how do you make a Cento your own?
2: Yeah. Um, I, because what you don't want to do is to have it be like a you know lesser version of the of any of the original exactly right? yeah,
0: that's how it feels a lot of the time
2: right. And so for me, part of that challenge became taking the line um and 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 giving it sort of a new life in this different context. And so much of that depends on the enjambment, right what you're enjamming it with. and then they're really, Interesting things that you have to pay attention to when you're looking for the lines, because if you're writing, if the whole poem is in present tense, there might be perfect lines of other poems. And I'm pretty strict about it. I use the exact line. I don't change the tense. I don't change, you know, anything like that from the original poems. And so that, you know, can inform, you know, what what lines you select. Um, but I like for it to be something new, kind of like an erasure, right? And then erasure should be something new beyond the original document it's based on, it's either a commentary on that, um, you know, or it's it's shifting your perspective on it. And I like an Ascento to take those lines and it's almost like having, you know, different building blocks, you know, and you might like, you know, if you have kids and you have Legos that you're always stepping on barefoot, you think of like, you know, there's the original thing that, you know, you spent $80 on for your kid to create they might make that once. The rest of the time, it's going to be, you know, all different things. And I think that Cento becomes, you know, you know, the ship one day and, you know, the tower another day. And, <laughs> and,
0: and the landmine a bicycle on it 2 a.m. Yes. Okay.
2: <laughs> And mainly very painful on your bare foot. Yeah.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good explanation. Um, okay. So I should say, I, I forgot to say if anybody has any questions for air and leave them in the chat windows, either on Facebook or YouTube, and I will pass them along. Uh, but let's hear another poem.
2: Okay, so this is from page 81. Um, and it's called a uh, taxonomy of endings that are actually beginnings. The last scene of The Godfather, when the door, the closed door shows Michael's transformation into the boss. Cilantro that bolts midsummer, leaving behind coriander seeds, false sunrise teasing the real thing the man who knew your mom was pregnant and left a knee on the neck. Hmm.
0: There's taxonomy of endings that are actually beginnings from taxonomies. Let's hear another one.
2: Okay. I'm going to read, I'm going to read this uh, poem amphibious um, that uh, it's um, it's based on, you know, some of my poems come from, you know, actual experience and, um, once I brought I, I was at a a like dinner auction and I brought home a framed painting and um, it was a painting of a nude woman and my daughter who was in second grade at the time asked if she could take it to school the next day for show and tell. I was a little confused about that. Um the poem kind of explains mm-hmm. what happened with that. Amphibious. My daughter wants to take a framed oil painting to school, a nude with loose breasts and a belly ripe as the full moon. Why? Because we're studying frogs, she says, and it's a frog. I cock my head to consider the angle of the draped arm but can't get past the female form. My daughter though is swimming in amphibians, bringing home scribbled pictures of tadpoles sprouting splayed feet at night. She sleeps in the bedroom I painted pink, her shelves lined with confectionery teapots and cups. By day, she wants to be her brother when she grows up. Lately, she's morphed into a creature who'd rather squirm free than be held. Oh, how we see what we want to see. My daughter, looking at a nude, sees a frog for show and tell. I look at her and see myself.
0: And that was amphibious. Um, not from yeah. taxonomies, but uh, a, a separate poem. Right. Yes. Um, so, so one of the things that I want to talk about too, is you, are also the editor, the poetry editor of Somerset Review. So yeah. what is your experience like with that? And and does that inform your poetry at all? Reading submissions? Um, just tell us a little bit about Somerset Review and, and what your experience like is like with
2: it. Yeah. Um, so Somerset Review, it's, um, the editor in chief and founder is Joe Levins and he does a, a, a brilliant job. Um, and, and we take fiction, uh, creative nonfiction and poetry. I'm the poetry editor and, um, I, I love reading the submissions and seeing just the variety. We get submissions from all over the world, as I'm sure you know you do for Rattle. And I love uh, reading through them, and, and I especially love uh, discovering uh, poets whose work I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's also great when you get you know submissions from you know famous people or, or people that you know well. Um, but when there are people that I've never heard of, you know, it might be, you know, somebody writing in India and I've, I've never read their work before. And, um, it's, it's really exciting. Um, I don't typically think of accepting the work, you know, we don't have themes, so I don't tend to think of them, um, that way, but, but sometimes I find that inadvertently I end up grouping certain types of poems that seem to speak to each other, I think. Mm-hmm. So they might not seem related necessarily um, at first glance, but in my mind, I, I kind of think of them as speaking to each other. Um, we tend to uh, publish about six poets per issue. We're published quarterly. We read year round and we publish um, you know, quarterly. Um, so sometimes that makes it hard though because there might be a poem that I think is a really strong poem but for whatever reason, it's not working with this particular, you know, grouping. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's probably the hardest part. Is, is you probably experienced this too, Tim, is like having to say no to poems <laughs> yeah. and, and, no, and to disappoint people, you know, <laughs> that's, that's really, that's not, that's not my favorite part. <laughs> no, I know. It's
0: the worst part. Um, so, and I don't know. So how conscious of you are of, of organizing the poems in that way? Cause that's not something that we do at all. Like we, yeah, I just, I loose. just. I like the idea of chaos, like in form, like right, who knows right. what's going to happen, you know? And then the the poems are ordered by just their last name alphabetically. So, right, right, so right. there's no um, interjection at all other than like what the subconscious pulls up, you know? So, right, um,
2: right. So, so and honestly, you, yeah. there are probably some connections that I'm the only one that would see them, mm-hmm. you know, that there might be just, you know, some element of it that is relating um, to another. Um, it It doesn't always happen. Uh, that way. And like I said, we don't, you know, we don't have an actual theme, but mm-hmm. I do like the idea because we publish so few of the poems in an issue. I do like the idea that people could read them all in a setting, in a single sitting, and that they would kind of resonate with each other as, as well as with the reader. So.
0: And, and how much editing do you do? Do you do, you do any hands on working with the poems or, or not? Because that's another thing that we don't like, I just right. take the poems. And sometimes there's like a line that's off or a word that's just not the right word. And I suggest a little change or a lot of times the beginning or the ending is like over, you know, written past the ending or has like a right. little launch pad that they don't need. Um, and so occasionally, there's some edits, but usually I don't edit much at all. Do, do you do that?
2: I do. But not, you know, not every poem. Um, but it's, you know, you read them and you think like, yes, there's really sort of like the essence of something there that I think is, is really trying to shine through. And maybe these few little tweaks, you know, we could get there or rearranging some things. And so I will um, work with, with the poets. Um, And, you know, it's nice that, that you know, or oh, maybe they're just saying this, but they'll say, wow, I just, I feel like the poem is so much better now, you know, because of these changes. Um, and so I will take, sometimes take the time to do that. And a lot of times the poems come just, you know, as is or, or, you know, mm-hmm. just the way, you know, I, I think they should be and, and there's no tinkering necessary. So it really just depends. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, well, we have time for, I think maybe two more poems and one more question from the audience. So let's do a poem then audience then, uh, then another okay poem.
2: okay that sounds good um so uh this poem it's called city birds are are losing their songs city birds are losing their songs sirens car horns and revved engines drown out sounds of their own voices so birds choose flatter tunes become dull cousins to their country counterparts. So says my ornithologist friend who offers the obvious metaphor. We're all overworked, overtired, deafened to ourselves. Sleep, we say, is the new sex. But maybe it's not so different from accents. Like the time my Yankee grandmother badgered the Southern sales clerk for Yan until I stepped in to translate, yarn. Or maybe it's like the cold I had last winter when my voice husky with congestion conjured Lauren Bacall. My nose was running. I coughed like a cat hacking up a hairball, but my husband said I sounded sexy on the phone. It's all in the reception, I thought, like reading a poem. We never own what we think
0: we own. Yeah. Great last line there. I love that. The Thanks. city birds are losing their songs. Um, let's see. So a couple of questions here. Okay. Um, So Cindy Gore asks, you, you mentioned, you know, dreaming about your Demi sonnets. Um, did any of your dreams about Demi sonnets inform your writing? And, and, and I'm always interested yes. in, and in, in, there's a way that like poetry is a dream in waking life or something. There's some relationship there. So, so how, how about that?
2: Yeah, um, I wish I I wish I had made a note of the actual poems that started in dreams that then became poems. But yes, there there were definitely many. My husband always uh, teases me that I do a lot of work in my dreams. Um, they're very, very productive, but he also says I laugh a lot in my sleep. Um, and so sometimes I'm actually I actually am sort of writing jokes that I'll remember in the morning, um, whether or not they end up in poems or or whatever is another matter. But yeah, the, the dreaming part did help. But beyond that, I do find that first thing in the morning before you're fully awake, for me, that's the time really to tap into poetry,
5: mm-hmm.
2: you know, that my mind is just a little more limber than, you know, before the chaos of the day has started to intervene. Um, and that's when I do my best writing. The problem is, when you have kids, that's when they kind of need you most, right, mm-hmm. is first thing. So for about a quarter of a century, I had to put that, like, best time for writing on uh, hiatus. <laughs> um, now that we're empty nesters, I can I can return to that time of day again, uh, my morning time. But I, I do find that, um, that that's really where... I can be most associative. A lot of my poems tend to be associative. You know, one thing leads to another. And mm-hmm. and that's when my brain, I think, is is in that associative mode.
0: Yeah, exactly. It is. I used to like writing right before bed when I was exhausted. And then mm-hmm. that was just the perfect, like that time where you're, you're like falling asleep, but then right. and you're, you don't aren't aware of where your thoughts are going and they're kind of like doing their own thing. That seems to that be how, yeah, exactly. Wh-
2: when do you write now?
0: Never. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> I don't that's
2: know. not true. I,
0: um, I don't, I, don't <laughs>
2: I, I heard your poem about Brussels sprouts. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wrote the one today, right, you know, 20 minutes before the show started. So that's the time, I guess. I, the, the morning does work better nowadays because um honestly because i found that i can sleep with melatonin so i can actually wake up a little oh, earlier nice. Nice. Um,
2: yeah, it, it is good. a nice time
0: like i just like i need quiet is all i need like not right. the, the knowledge that i won't be interrupted is the yeah, only thing that matters
2: that gets harder and harder yeah, it to, it does. with technology it does. and everything it's harder to isolate yourself that way i i just have to say your poem about the brussels sprouts it um, made me laugh because when we were kids, my mom made Brussels sprouts one night for for dinner and my brother was little and he took a bite and he said Brussels sprouts taste like someone farted down your throat. <laughs> And I have, I have not put that in a poem yet, but uh, your Brussels sprouts poem there. might
0: inspire me to do so. There you go. That's perfect. <laughs> um, here, uh, one last question. This is Patricia McMillan. Um, she asked about that, that, um, the poem in parts. Um, did the veteran that you wrote about get a chance to read it? And then, you know, what was the reaction? And then just the follow up to that, like, how do you, how much do you think about how people are going to react to the poems that you, that you write?
2: yeah those are both really good questions. That student um did not and that that student it was a sad story because um he was he was really struggling and um he ended up not passing the class and I'd you know given him an extension and everything. And he, um, he wrote to me, he said, I know I'm not going to pass this class that I haven't, you know, turned in the work. He said, but I do want to tell you that this has been the most influential course I've ever taken. And I don't want you to think that my not passing has anything to do with you, which was very kind of him, mm-hmm. you know, to tell me that his mother also wrote to me, um, uh, I think it was after the semester had ended saying that my giving him, um, the book and it was, um brian turner's Mm -hmm. here bullet and brian turner was the one reading on our campus that when i gave him the book and and he also came to the dinner with brian turner and got to meet him and i got his book signed and everything and she said that she was uh just so thankful um that he had that experience that that really was you know kind of a turning point for him um that's one of sort of encapsulates what happens a lot of times with our students, that even the experiences that we have um, with them that are the most meaningful, it doesn't always mean that they're, you know, mm-hmm. the star students as we measure that. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. But it that also doesn't mean that it, that the experience wasn't worthwhile for them or for us um, that it doesn't always have to be the A plus students, you know, that we learn from um, and that are learning the most um in a particular class. Um, I did want to say, you know, I, I mentioned before Jim Tate had come to my campus when I was an undergrad. And so I loved the opportunity um, to bring Brian Turner uh, mm-hmm. to this student. Um, that student, you know, probably isn't going to become a poet or or go to an MFA program, but hopefully he'll carry that with him and carry that experience. And to know that that there are ways to frame, you know, even these horrific experiences of war that you've had, there are ways to frame them and, and a way to turn to language um, in, in those times. So in terms of the other part of that question, um, how much do I think about like who the audience is going to be? Um, I think I don't think about that so much in original, in initial drafts. Mm-hmm. I think that comes more towards publication time. And there are changes that I will make um, you know, either to uh, have more of a composite of a particular person, if I don't want it to reveal anything that I feel like is private um, about that um, individual um, or maybe not publish the poem at all mm-hmm. in some cases. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. I can't remember who said, but somebody said on here, like no poem is worth a friendship or, or something to that effect. Right. And that's really,
2: well, you know, it depends on the friendship. kidding
0: <laughs> um, okay well uh, let's close that with one last poem uh, what do you okay. want what do you want to read last
2: well so um you know as a poet so just this week uh i got named a uh, poet laureate of oh, our that's... county of blair county pennsylvania which is just an amazing honor and i'm so excited to be able to take you know poetry into the community even more and go into high schools and and you know talk to students and just introduce them to the kind of contemporary poetry that they don't always have time to, to teach when, you know, they've got to teach to tests, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the part that worries me about it is a lot of times, um, you know, people want you, you know, writing poems for their weddings and their anniversaries and Valentine's Day, you know, that kind of thing. And one of the things I tell people, I've had people ask me to, you know, read a poem at their wedding and I'll say, you know, I've only ever written one love poem and it mentions colonoscopy. <laughs> and that usually gets me out of pretty much, you know, mm. any love related assignment. <laughs> so this is that poem. This is my one love poem for my husband. It's a guzzle. So for those of you who aren't familiar with a guzzle, it looks like it should be pronounced gazelle or gazelle, but it's pronounced guzzle. It's not very poetic sounding, um, but they're couplets. They're two line stanzas and each uh, second line of the couplet or stanza ends with the same word or phrase so you'll hear um a word repeated over and over that really is the form it's not because i uh just couldn't think of anything better to say so this is guzzle of the dangling preposition
0: here hang on one second because i think okay. i might not have put it in my um in my file here let me let me pull it up oh, okay. i want people to be able to read along yeah looking. okay um
2: while, um, while you're looking for that, Tim, I will just say that Sarah's poem that she read at the, the top of the hour um, that was Love is a Transitive Verb, I think. Was that her, the title for her poem? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I have a, a poem that uh, came out in Concision Magazine, <clears throat> which those of you, if you haven't discovered Concision, uh, it's a terrific new poem. Um, Journal of Experimental Poetry. But I have a, a poem in there called, I Feel So Damned Intransitive. So I wanted to mention that echoing back to Sarah. And since this poem is a dangling preposition, I thought I'd, I'd, I'd mention that as well. Did you find um, that? I
0: did. Yeah. Yeah. You'd send it to me and I said, right. I added it. And then, you know, right. in the space of between saying I got it and I didn't actually do it. <laughs> so, no worries. But here no you worries.
2: Go. Okay. Guzzle of the Dangling Preposition. I need someone to sing to, undress for, shake my ass at and shower with. Someone to bitch to, cut calories for, get pissed off at and make up with. To hold up and be held by when I'm down, to see through, to read to and with. To wax my legs and bikini area for and make fun of other people with. Someone to be on top of and beneath, someone to fall asleep and wake up with. To wink at across a crowded room, drink with, talk dirty to, and be flirty with. Someone to apply Vicks VapoRub to, schedule colonoscopies for, and floss with. I need someone to lie to, for, about, with. Someone to cry to, for, about, with. Someone to write to, for, about, with. Someone I'd die for, without, and yes, with.
0: Oh, that was a great poem. And, and you're in trouble now because everyone's going to ask you to read at weddings. So you have to read that poem. It's <laughs> I have to perfect read
2: the for... poem. It is. It's a
0: perfect <laughs> it's wedding so poem. So
2: romantic. <laughs> you know, I, I should add, my husband is perfectly fine with the fact that after 32 years, I've only ever written one love poem. <laughs> He's like, just leave me out of it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure. Um, well, thanks so much, Erin. It's been a blast. I love talking to you. And um, and great these poems are great, too. too. So it's really thanks fun. Thanks so
2: much. Yeah. I'm excited to listen to the open mic.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. Thanks for being a guest and, um, and hope to hope you take care and I'll talk to you soon.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. Yeah. So it's Erin Murphy and her newest book of course is taxonomies, um, which is from word, uh, word poetry. Um, you can find more of Erin's work at her website, which is, um, erin-murphy.com. That's Aaron, Erin dot murphy.com. That's Erin E R I N hyphen murphy. M U R P H Y.com. Um, and so, definitely check that out. All these books are great. Though the one that uh, the one about people being you know close to historical figures um, that that I want to read that book and I don't have it, so I have to pick up a copy. But thanks for uh, for being a guest again, Aaron, and for uh, everybody watching the show today. We're gonna go to a quick break and then do the open uh, lines. As always, um, I will set up the Zoom link. Put the Zoom in the um, in the chat window. Where do I get the link? Every week I forget where I get the link from participants invite that's how you do it copy invite link okay so i'm going to put the link in the chat windows on uh youtube and facebook so if you'd like to join only if you'd like to join and share a poem um come on to the zoom link we have about 45 minutes to do that and then we'll be talking to uh susan gaspoli at the uh, top or bottom or top of the hour whatever you call it um um, so if you'd like to join, what you do is email your poem right now to OpenMic. That's OpenMIC at Rattle.com. Open M I C at Rattle.com. Email your poem there so I can show it on screen and people watching can, can read along with it. And then find the Zoom link, which I'm about to deploy in the chat windows, but only come on to read your poem and then come back to the original link. So you can read poems and, and, and participate in the chat there that's public and, and everybody can see and participate together. Um, so if you'd like to join, here is the Zoom link. And then we're going to go to a quick break, and I will be right back with the open lines. And we're back. Thanks for your patience as everybody comes on into the open lines. We have um, a good crowd here already. Ten people lined up. Um, Dick Westheimer and Audrey Friedman, Patricia McMillan, Caitlin Buxbombs here. I'm Susan Cornell. So is here. Um, So what we're going to do, I think the structure of the show, I think I'm decided we're going to always have the, if we have a second guest, we'll have it at the top, at the two hour mark, and that'll be the close. So we kind of always gonna have like 45 minutes for open lines. I think that's how we're going to do it. Um, We'll get to as many as we can in that span. And first, let's go to, um, let's go to, uh, um, let's see. So Susan Cornell, let's see. Let's go to Nivedita Karthik first. Hey, Nivy. Yeah. Hey, Nivy. How you doing?
6: I'm doing good, thank you. How about you?
0: I'm doing great. It's good to see you. So, uh, so what do you have for us today?
6: Um, a poem very loosely based on the prompt. So, I mean, the prompt was right about the novel. Um, I chose War and Peace, and I took the concept of the novel being War and Peace, and I, I sort of wrote about that. So it's not based on the novel, but on the concept of the novel, if that makes sense.
0: It does. Yeah, And, and thanks for reminding me, because I forgot to mention that the prompt for this week um, <laughs> was to write a... Was it was it a classic novel? If it was, I should have read yes. it. Or was it just a classic book? Because I Quite wrote... Write a poem based
6: on a classic novel. Uh-oh.
0: Well, I failed the prompt. I wrote about a classic book instead. <laughs> so a poem let me read the actual wording of it it was a poem based on a classic novel so oops Um, anyway you can you can you can do it wrong that's fine um everything is okay here um but uh but yeah that was a prompt and if you want to share poems about you know current events or just anything you'd like to share or poems um um poems that have been recently published you can send a link to an online thing that's what the open mic is for so so this is horrors of war on the ground from based on war and peace Okay, go ahead. Horrors
6: of war on the ground. Horrors of war on the ground. Amidst the wreckage in the city, a mother stares at the half-finished sweater in her bag, knowing full well she may never see her son again. In the trenches, deep in the battlefield, a son stares at the photo in his wallet, knowing full well he may never see his mother again. Such is war. Each scrape of the shovel each scrape of the shovel against the cold, hard ground. Each scrape of the shovel against the cold, hard ground echoes in time with the drumbeat of the... shelling. Each scrape of the shovel against the cold, hard ground marks the loss of one, two, ten, who knows how many. Each scrape of the shovel against the cold, hard ground unearths unwanted treasures of limbs and skulls and unexploded mines, each scrape of the shovel against the cold, hard ground signals that peace is far, far behind.
0: A very moving poem. Thanks for sharing that, Nivy. Th- that repetition of the each scrape of the shovel, um, really powerful stuff. Thanks for sharing that. Nope, oh, I think she froze, but that's okay. She was done. Uh, but thanks, Nivy. Um, let's go. Thank you. Oh, she's back. There you go. Okay. Um, let's go to. Um... Let's go to Audrey Friedman.
7: Hello, Tim. Hello, hey. everybody.
0: Yeah. Hey, Audrey. How are you doing?
7: Really good. Beautiful day here. I'm sitting outside and enjoying all of you. What a great reading today.
0: Yeah, Aaron's great. So where, where are you? I can't remember. Are you in the Pacific Northwest uh, or somewhere?
7: Uh, no, I'm uh, near Hilton Head, South Carolina.
0: Ah, the opposite side. Yeah, that's a great place.
7: Yep. okay so this one you're gonna see my angry side okay my ex my ex son-in-law in coney island the cyclones carts chug up ancient wooden tracks laboring like a runner half a mile from the marathon's finish line muscles cramped lungs on fire Only raw instincts pushing him ahead, but now he teeters on the apex and begins to topple over the precipice. For almost 100 years, these roller coaster carts have risen, have plummeted, and the impetuous decision to board a ride or a marriage ends either in panic or pride. How many will stand in line to buy the $10 ticket again? Will he display a greater measure of profundity toward his second wife after hurtling in a shuddering cart on rickety tracks toward the devil he's managed to skirt? Thank you.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Audrey. That was uh, Audrey Friedman. With uh, the ex, my ex son in law in Coney Island, very vivid poem. Thanks for sharing it. Thank you. Okay, let's go to uh, Dick Westheimer next.
4: Hey Tim. Hey Dick. Yeah, how you doing? Now, this is the one thing that can get me out of the garden on a seventy degree (laughs) sunny day, first of May. Nicely done. Nicely done
0: yeah yeah beautiful weather uh, finally for once my my mom I talked to my mom last night she was gardening all day yesterday too, kind of up by you in Rochester new york
4: um so uh time for two or just one
0: um, probably just one i think um because yeah because uh, we do have to leave at uh i have to leave at um you know eleven or i don't know how to say it two and a half two <laughs> hours and fifteen minutes into the show <laughs> right so um uh so Good. which one do you want to do?
4: Um, I think I'll do a, a very short one the last line spoken by
0: the actor playing Lear okay is that a, from the uh oh, I'm sorry yeah that's a um boats
4: respond poem
0: okay let me pull it up really quickly then um so what so explain what that was about
4: oh gosh you know the say the nuclear saber rattling again mm. and just just the sort of um you know the, the the possibility that all of our other conversations are moot, uh, if if you know can be rendered moot by by merely uh, you know one step over a line.
0: hmm Yeah. Yeah. For sure, it's, it's it's something that we kind of take for granted maybe because we survive so long um, without. Yeah, and, you know, without, I, you know,
4: I grew yeah. up in the duck and cover days mm-hmm. when you know it was a um, you know. Given uh, the missile crisis and all that you know we, we we had this sense then and then we sort of abandoned it and all of a sudden it has returned with a vengeance. yeah,
0: I think is it was Eric Weinstein who called it the twin nuclei problem the the you know the atom and the atom and um you know the the nucleus of the the cell and the the atom you know both things that could wipe us out <laughs> yeah <laughs> with like it's... designer viruses or uh, nuclear war and right. we don't know and that... what to do about it.
4: Yeah, not the least, uh, you know, meteors, and what, what's your obsession, the uh, mass coronal
0: ejection. Oh, the coronal mass ejection, yeah. I mean, that, that Carrington event, if anybody wants to look up that, that's the thing I worry about, because it's, you know, w- with the way society's structured now, it happens every couple hundred years, and if it happens, you know, we're really in trouble, so. Yeah. And there's nothing we can do about it, but anyway.
4: Well, it feels the same way about this. So, uh, this is the last line spoken by the actor playing Lear. The actor playing Lear looks to the balcony as if seeing there an answer to a question he can't quite remember. He thinks of the groceries he's to pick up. The audience sits silent. Next to himself, he asks to be or not to be. But that isn't it, the audience still silent. He gathers himself in the quiet, takes a breath, sighs into his cupped hands. The audience rustles. He begins, oh, reason not the need. Forget skips ahead. Man's life is cheap as beasts. He stops again. He knows something we don't. Backstage he's read. The missiles fly. There is no hope. The show must go on. He rips his kingly robe. Says the line again. Man's life is cheap as beasts, and again, man's life is cheap as beasts, and again,
0: man's life. Yeah, it's a terrifying poem. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Dick. And um, um, yeah, it reminds me too the that um, what was that look up? Don't look up that movie. I don't know if you watched that one, but the end of that was such a great scene. I won't spoil it for anybody, but but check it out if you oh, haven't.
4: I mean, I have to finish it. I I only got part of the way through it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh really the ending is good i like the ending
4: okay yeah it, it okay. seemed little, the rest Stop. of it seemed a little contrived but i'll, I'll give it a shot at your recommendation
0: <laughs> yeah it's a good ending i liked it but um but anyway thanks dick good to see it and thanks for sharing this poem it was a good one thank you Appreciate as they it. always are of course <laughs> okay let's go to uh patricia mcmillan next
8: okay oh yeah
0: hey I mean, patricia I'm how you good.
8: doing hi fine how are you i'm yeah, good, good. That was a really such an interesting hour, Uh, great interview and what an interesting poet, you find him. Um, Oh, there's my poem. Okay. So I did the prompt. Mm -hmm. Um, I happened to be reading my Antonia um, by Willa Cather. And I do not know where the rest of this came from, but um, it is a documentary poem um, by, by Aaron Murphy's definition in that I did a lot of research. Mm-hmm. I haven't finished my, Anton- my Antonia. Um, and I, ha- I don't even know if I've read Dr. Zhivago or just saw the movie, but this is a mashup of the two. Interesting.
0: Okay, go ahead.
8: When Yuri met Antonia. Over espressos, au roi du café, a lull in the Great War, matahari fading in a laminated rear window, They discuss taxes, strikes, and whether men and women can ever just be friends. Antonia says, of course, it was that way with Jimmy in Nebraska, though after Papa shooted himself in the cold barn, unshriven, surrounded by thin livestock and hungry insects, we, how do you say, drifted apart. Yuri nods, he's Russian, also a doctor, so he understands both winter and suicide. Still, things are different now, he must insist. The roof over the whole of Russia has been torn off and we find ourselves under the open sky. In short, he wants her, won't take no. He'll steal a kiss before she has a chance to plead the husband children waiting on the farm, before he thinks of his own wife and child abandoned in Variniko, an excerb. Oh, God, Antonia murmurs. Then, confusingly, right there, yes, yes, attracting looks from neighboring tables that turn out to be full of partisan soldiers one of whom, disguised as Jean Cocteau, takes an order. I'll have what she's having. Antonia rises, flees into the night, leaving a false hotel address penciled on a napkin. Yuri pockets it, mutely surrenders. They'd never meet again.
0: Oh, very cool. That was a great mashup. I loved that, when Yuri met Antonia. Thanks a lot for sharing that, Patricia. Thanks. Uh, Let's go to uh, Caitlin Buxbaum next. And also, let me admit other people. We have to let other people join in. Okay. So, hey, Caitlin, how are you doing?
9: Pretty good. Yeah, I was thinking it was a pretty small crowd today, but yeah, more I, people are coming. <laughs> yeah, I,
0: I do like you. I think you suggested using the admit button and it does mm-hmm. make it a little easier to juggle, except the only problem is I have to like move the screen to, to get over to where the admit button is. But other than that, um, so what do you have that you want to share today?
9: So the poem I sent was one that I wrote a few years ago um, when I was still doing my master's in teaching. Um, and because I was looking for, I didn't have time to write one um, on a classic novel for like a new one. I did do uh, the, na- I did napo Rimo or whatever, trying to write a poem every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh been busy, but that one just didn't come out. So this one was on a very memorable. I don't know why. It was just, um, we had this ride in at a coffee shop in Anchorage and I really felt like the winter scene. So, um, this is from my book interstitials, which also came out two years ago. So it's kind of like happy anniversary to Absolutely. my book. Yeah.
0: Happy anniversary
9: um, <laughs> and my 30th birthday is in two weeks. So oh, it's happy like birthday too. Lots going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, this is called Of Persuasion, and that's a reference to the novel by Jane Austen, and it starts with an epigraph. These were noises which belonged to the winter pleasures. Her spirits rose under their influence, and after being long in the country, nothing could be so good for her as a little quiet cheerfulness. And there's a picture also. Slush and steam, Sounds of winter, outside and inside, onomatopoetic but unrecognized by the masses, until they hear the hissing and the squishing and the art of getting through a December day, Alaska beating to the stretch of its own drum, around the fire and ice and everything nice but not so much as the quiet, the little quiet small with comfort and lack of conversation, though it isn't all bad when you consider what cheer the season brings, even as the snow sinks softly through the thick air, air thick with feeling and spirit instead of words, until someone's broken the ice, for better or worse, tasting the sounds of socked-in solstice with their cherry tongue, with pleasure, sniffing at something unsaid, unheard in the long-lost country, If a snowflake falls in the meadow, has climate change turned the world upside down on its head, whatever that means in the vast expanse of the universe, filled with stars and galaxies like so much cosmic slush and steam, an inside out song of shared space? It is written. These are the indelible and effortless marks of a momentary, solitary persuasion.
0: Excellent. Thanks. It was of persuasion. Caitlin Buxbaum. What's the name of the book again?
9: interstitial so nice and difficult to remember and spell (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: Yeah. there it is thanks Uh, always a pleasure thanks caitlin
9: and lastly i'm doing a zoom poetry reading on the 18th so anybody that wants to come to that um there should be an event on facebook Mm -hmm. um but that's a poetry parlay thing where i read and then i read poems of another person and then the community reads poems of that person too and i chose um Rosemary Witala Trauma ah. as my influence. So. Yeah,
0: yeah, she's great. Um, episode like I don't know, fifty or so, she was on. Um, mm-hmm. it, it put. Do you have a link you can put in the chat window?
9: Um, like, yeah, put it on YouTube it,
0: or somewhere. Yeah.
9: Okay, I'm gonna put it in the Zoom. Um, first, because YouTube, like, if you put a link in the chat, it mm-hmm. deletes it until it can like review it later. Oh, really? So, mm-hmm. um, I'll post it on Facebook or something. Okay, um,
0: on sounds page. good. Yeah. yeah. Well, good to see you, Caitlin. Thanks for sharing that.
9: Yep, you too. Okay. Thanks.
0: Bye. Okay. And now we're going to go to, um, let's go to uh, Lisa Allison. Hasn't been on in a while anyway. There you yeah. go.
10: <laughs> Sorry, I haven't been on in a while. It's been, been busy poetry-wise, which is good.
0: Yeah, um, for sure. It's good to see you. So what do you have for us today?
10: So I've got a, well, this was actually inspired by Aaron just talking about using a line from a book or something else. Mm-hmm. So that's the title of my prose poem today, um, and also inspired by her talking just briefly today about um, how, like, the difference between poetry and prose poems. And I'm moving right now from poetry or expanding from poetry into flash, creating mm-hmm. nonfiction. So this could be called either, I guess, but the the journal labeled it a prose poem.
0: So this is um, um, this pattern of light wanders all over the ocean. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Okay. And this is from Cloves Literary.
10: This pattern of light wanders all over the ocean collecting prey. From the hum of his hospital room, my memory-worn father asks for my elegant friend, Lila with the starlit hair. So I don't remind him how he'd once picked me up at midnight from the now suicided Lila's house in a country that spat on justice, a country we'd left behind. Long ago, along with Lila and her mother, who, high on heroin, poked me out of her daughter's bed with a kitchen knife, said, get out, get out, get out of my girl's life. And dad remembers not the knife, nor my name, and only sometimes the land we left, but says, how wonderful, my girl, to have such a dear friend in this nebulous world.
0: Now, that was a great little prose poem. And how how do you think about the difference between the two? Like, like what makes a prose poem versus somebody just wrote to me this morning and said, um, I write flash fiction. Can I submit that? And I'm like, well, if you call it prose poetry, you can. (laughs) Um, so how do you, how do you conceive of the difference? To me, it's
10: the musicality of it right now. Um, keeping that natural rhythm that, um, that you'd often find in poetry, the, uh, the alliteration, the, the poetic diction devices, I guess,
0: mm-hmm.
10: uh, but I think this one could go either way. I do find there is an immediacy to flash fiction or flash, in this case, creative nonfiction that lends itself very well to where are we in that prose poetry or prose form? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know. Do you consider that prose poetry, or to you, is that more?
0: I, I consider it prose poetry. I, to me, like like what well, like I mentioned talking to Aaron, I feel like it, it's more if it's more about the voice than it's poetry, and if it's more about the scene or ideas that it conjures it's more towards the the, the fiction part or the, the prose part that's kind of how i conceive of it but the line who knows where the line where to draw the line or, or what the difference is and everything contains elephant elements of everything else so so it's always an interesting question it's just whatever whatever you feel like uh calling it at the end of the day i guess
10: yeah
0: <laughs> yeah very cool well thanks so much for sharing it, least always good to see you
10: you too thanks tim
0: take care yeah, it was Lisa Allison and that is um um this pattern of light wander's all over the ocean collecting prey from clovesliterary.com. So do check that out. And let's go to um Andrew Tredinnick.
11: Um hi Tim.
0: Hey Andrew, how are, how are today? you today? Yeah, or this morning uh,
11: early for you? Yeah, it's pretty early. Um uh I I got inspired by um snow falling on snow falling on cedars. Mm. um which i guess is a classic um it's called it's a great book i know it's kind of been banned in even in some places really um, for what what in your with country that? for its you know that school banning thing oh. where they don't let mm. don't let certain books in libraries cuz you know sex and stuff like that, huh. I, um, I, didn't so I, that. Figure, I mean
0: i read it in high school i think
11: <laughs> yeah exactly so. same same here it's a high school text here uh, but i got inspired by um yeah you know, when it first came out and um, I put a little note down the bottom um, of the poem to sort of explain how I've, um, how I've done it. So I might just read that if that's yeah, okay. Yeah,
0: sure. Go ahead. I'll put that up.
11: Um, so Snow Falling on Strawberry Fields after David Guterson. It strikes me that cliches are, in a sense, classic expressions albeit overused ones. I was intrigued by T.R. Paulson last week, describing her experiments in seeking surprise using cliches in poems. I wondered if I could tell part of the classic story of Snow Falling on Cedars, which features strawberry fields, using now classic cliches from Lennon and McCartney. So five of the lines here are from that song. cliche quotation from the novel itself. The last three lines are quoted from the novel. And a glance at a classic cherry field from Basho. The first two lines, I was reading a little bit of um, Basho's um, work, which is incredibly inspiring, as, as you know. Yeah, so I'll just um,
0: yeah.
11: yeah, I'll read from the start. And so the quote from Basho, at Minakuchi, I met a friend I had not seen for 20 years. Our two lives, between them, has lived this blossoming cherry. And let me take you down because I'm going to strawberry fields. Nothing is real and nothing to get hung about, said Lennon McCartney. At the trial, I met you after, after years. Between our two lives, many strawberry seasons. You let me take you down to play in the old cedar tree. The tryst, the first kiss, yet not the ring. The squall, tragedy reporting at court, strawberry fields for sale, witnesses misunderstanding all they saw. It's getting hard to be someone here, but you know I know when it's a dream. We bend our egos, alone, we are nothing at all, dust in a strong wind.
0: Oh, very cool. Those playing with cliches. Yeah, yeah. Those, mm. That's great. Snow falls on strawberry fields. When was that I was book? In, yeah. What's that? Uh, uh,
11: sorry. Uh, when was the book written? Do you do you know? Uh, nineteen uh, early nineties, nineteen ninety four, I think. Yeah, because I was thinking 95. I
0: read it in high school, but it doesn't seem that yep. old. So I was wondering if I was no, wrong. But yeah, that was very have been recent in time. Yeah.
11: And I was just intrigued by the the strawberry fields. Um, forever story, it almost kind of fits, you know, there's kind of like these two links and and both of, both of those things, it's like the the Beatles become cliche in a way and yet the cliches are, are incredibly powerful, you mm-hmm. know, it's kind of like anything that's over, overdone becomes a cliche, but in a good way.
0: Yeah, yeah I mean, every so, cliche was once a great metaphor.
11: <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of like all these things looping around and beating each other.
0: Yeah, very cool. So, yeah, very cool combination of things that poem. Thanks for sharing that, Andrew.
11: Okay, thanks, Tim.
0: Yep, take care. Cheers. Uh, let's go to um, Jennifer Lee Wang.
12: Yeah, on the subject of cliches, <laughs> I've got a poem that I just wrote because uh, I was watching uh, the Coppola Dracula last night. Oh, cool. And, um, being a fan of vampire fiction, I was kind of just thinking about how my uh, My love of vampires and vampire fiction has sort of shifted as I've gotten older and uh, my thoughts about Dracula. So yeah, here's my my piece. Am I a bad goth for not liking Dracula? (laughs) I love vampires and Dracula is our king. I devoured the YA and romances, but the original, our sire, took all summer to read. I actually would have rather gone out in the sun. Coppola's film held me in thrall But I'm not sure I would give Mina the killing blow if she had to cry tears of lost love, betraying her Jonathan. Gary Oldman is handsome, but I'm more a Keanu fan these days. Did my feminism break the vampire's curse as I think about consent, abuse, xenophobia, and slut-shaming? You can't cover problems and pain with black velvet, red silk, powder, and lace. I still like Bella Lugosi, though.
0: Very interesting. Yeah, good thoughts on that. Am I a bad goth girl for not liking Dracula? Uh, Thanks for sharing that, Jen. Thank you. Yep. Take care. Let's try uh, Kimberly. There we go. Oh, there you go. Great. I'm glad we got you. Hey, good to see you. Sorry. That was really hard. (laughs) No problem at all. Um, So what do you have that you'd like to share?
3: I wanted to read a poem that I wrote um, titled The Life Cycle of Latotes.
0: Okay. And did you send that? Oh, here it is. I hate it right here. Yeah.
3: Um, You know, I, it was interesting how um, a, a lot of the poetry that we were listening to today were about transitive verbs and this and that. And so I thought this might kind of fit in because the Latotes is a, is a kind of a strange Concept and I wanted to read the definition of it before I read the poem.
0: Okay, um, just to know, we uh, I couldn't open the file. It was, said it wouldn't open for me, so uh, we'll just have to listen. But that's fine.
3: Oh dear. Okay. Well, litotes is an ironic understatement in which an affirmative is expressed by the negative of its contrary. For example. You won't be sorry, meaning you'll be glad. The life cycle of Lutotes. In utero, it is quiet. I am innocent, growing a millimeter per day. I am not opposed to help. I am parasitic. I won't be sorry until I am born. In childhood, I want more. It doesn't taste that bad. I am unbrainwashed. Look for me when I get lost in a crowd. During adolescence, I have more. I eat more. I lie. Listen to me. I am not untrustworthy. I begin to conform and doubt myself. Finally, adulthood. I've had enough. Never forget, I am a shoplifting drug addict, a well kept secret. Do not underestimate me.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Thanks so much for sharing that, Kimberly. Thank you. It was Kimberly McNeil with um, Latoties. Thanks for thanks, Kimberly. Have, take care. Thanks. Okay, and now um, let's see. So I still don't have any audio from from Potter. Sorry, Potter. Let's go to Bev. Bev Wanda Leatherstone. Good morning. Hey, Bev. How are you doing today?
13: Great. That was a great interview. I loved that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just loved it. I mean, it's just so, there's so many amazing poets in the world. Like I had no idea until she submitted a poem for the Poetry Prize and. It was one of the finalists. I had no idea anything about her writing, and she's great. Um, so, what is it that you'd like to share today?
13: Yeah, fabulous. So, my my response today is to the prompt, mm-hmm. and I've been trying trying out that form Pantoon, um, and tried to expand it a little bit so that it's not so stilted. And uh, and I'm also curious about next week's demi demi sonnet. That sounds great.
0: Yeah, it's gonna be fun. So.
13: <laughs> so mine, mine today is about Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass.
0: Mm-hmm.
13: Alice in her white pinafore. Portraying Alice, I leapt from my school stage to follow with curiosity the white rabbit. With my cat Dinah, we swept off the page to burrow deeply into our insatiable habit. After following that curious white rabbit to a caterpillar who on a hookah toked, we burrowed deeper to feed our habit, while through tree foliage a cat's smile poked. Where a caterpillar on a hookah toked, Alice was asked if she's 10 feet tall. Was it all a dream or some dope joke? Just eat me and return to someone small. The airplanes asked if Alice is 10 feet tall. They urged her, feed her head, become a sage. But what made her choose to eat and return to small? As Alice, I stretched on that enchanted stage.
0: Oh, that was excellent. Yeah, thank- I love your uh, your pantoums. That's great. Alice and her white pinafore. Thanks for sharing that, Bev. Thank you so much. Yep, take care okay and now let's see um let's see so i'm waiting for um for susan Vespoli, who should be here any moment um in the meantime um let me see if there's anybody who asked me to read a poem ah here this is um we have one to listen to although everybody listening okay so we're going to wrap up the uh open lines portion on zoom anybody who's listening there can uh, just watch on the regular stream because you're not gonna be able to hear this but Um, but Carla Schwartz sent a poem with some audio. So I'm going to play that as we wait. And hopefully Susan Vespoli will be here in just a moment, but let me, let me get this started if I can. Okay. So this is Carla Schwartz. Um, she said, I cannot make it today. She can never make it this time of day. So it's only, um, it's only later shows she can make, but, um, but here's a prompt poem inspired by the Ballad of the Sad Cafe by Carson McCullers, which is something I'd never heard of before. And hopefully this will work. This is uh, Carla Schwartz playing it in her own words, or reading it, I should say, in her own words. So here we go.
14: This is called The Sad Ballad of the Garlic Mustard. It's a poem by Carla Schwartz at CB99Videos on all social media. This poem was partially inspired by The Ballad of the Sad Cafe by Carson McCullers. The poem first appeared in the collection Intimacy with the Wind by poems by carla schwartz finishing line press 2017. you can find it everywhere the sad ballad of the garlic mustard as a teen i never thought of carson as a woman Maybe it was that hard, masculine name. But I must have identified more with Miss Amelia and her hard ways turned soft by love than with Cousin Lyman. I felt uncomfortable about Lyman. He popped up like the garlic mustard that emerged in my side yard this April. Not entirely unwelcome, the punchy, green, heart-shaped leaves bouquets brides might throw to hopeful singles. The roots are tender, white, and radishy. I intended to jettison them, but then read you can cook them. I would have to soak the roots to remove the mud. Miss Amelia might have used the leaves in a beer. She would bring pitchers out and pour glasses all around while Lyman stayed on. I could open a pop-up cafe with all this mustard, sautéed in eggs, a mustard pesto, Roots cooked into sauce. Then I read the young ones have more cyanide than the second years do. Bad things can go good. I stare out at all the mustard, bags full in my future, and wonder if I can tackle all this alone, and if I might one day come to love my yard, if sautéing and invasive is sweet revenge.
0: Ah, another great poem. As always, by Carla Schwartz, uh, that was uh, The Ballad of the Garlic Mustard. And I'm going to have to check out that book, The Ballad of the Sad Cafe, by Carson McCullers. Never heard of that before. Um, um, you know, that was Carla Schwartz at CB99 Videos, if you want to find more um, of her work. Let me see if, um, so I think maybe the Susan that's here is the is Susan Vespoli, but I think maybe she can't connect. So maybe there's a problem with that. Um, oh no Susan Vespoli is here. Here we go. Hey Susan. Hi. Yeah, there you go. I
5: am. Thanks.
0: Yeah, good to see you. Thanks for joining today.
5: Thank you for asking.
0: Yeah, here you go. Um, so um yeah, so we have another poem, an update um um on your son's situation as part of the inspiration. But then of course the, the the problem with homelessness in our country is just a huge problem that never goes away and there's always more to talk about it. Um do you wanna explain what inspired this poem and that's going to be coming up on Tuesday and um and what it's all about
5: I'm um, sure yeah it's um so my son was shot um in March March 12th and he has um been homeless on and off and he and we're still going through all the investigation part about how what happened when he was shot by a policeman um on March 12th but the night before March 11th I knew that he had been somehow arrested and I was trying to get to the bottom of what happened mm-hmm. there. So, um, so eventually, I ended up getting the, <clears throat> excuse me, the pictures and um, also a, um, a, the body cam videos, which was, you know, so I looked and it was, it's it, what yeah. happened. What happened, you know? So this is what it is. Just like what happened, and it was shocking. I mean, it was kind of like I knew,
0: mm-hmm. and I was shocked at the same time. Yeah, so. I can imagine. I mean, how hard that must be to watch.
5: Yeah. Yeah. It's like I, uh, I kind of had to know what happened. Did he do something? What, you know, so it was, it was uh, a little nightmarish. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and so this poem, um, also, um, talks about, um, just the problem in general with, um, of homelessness and, and how we treat it in society. And there's an article that you link to, uh, from the LA times, um, that, that, that's what makes it a current events poem. So, so can you explain that too?
5: Um it's just homeless you know individuals that it's growing I'm, i' I have I'm not exactly sure what the um, solution is and although I think awareness and and how people are treated and the respect um, level mm-hmm. it's like that was what was so shocking to me is the the way they treated these people for sleeping and yeah. um, you know yeah, the tone true. and and it's just it's just it's, I think number one people need to realize they're human beings and to treat them with respect. Um, and, and actually, and so I'm researching, it's a whole new world for me. And mm-hmm. I'm researching and find that it has been, um, there was a and a few years back um, was a court ruled, waking pe- you know, arresting people for uh, sleeping in a public place was like cruel. Yeah. <laughs> and, that, <clears throat> and, and what good does that do? And then there's also articles I read saying that, the, you know, when they're arrested, um, it just makes their, their plight worse and worse and worse, you know, mm-hmm. it's like it doesn't help. It doesn't help. I don't know. So, I mean, for me, just like, that's not the answer. You know? Yeah.
0: So. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there's, you know, health issues, you know, mental health and, and, you know, in general, and we just treat it like a, like a criminal problem, whether it's with drug addiction or, or mental illness, um, you know, people need rehab and they need healthcare. They don't need to uh, go to jail and compound all your problems with fines and, and, you know, all sorts of stuff.
5: Right. Right. And the, and the, and the tree, I mean, it's just the, the um, to see the interaction between the police officer, which is totally acceptable in in our, in our, Mm -hmm. you know, in our world, it seems because um, I tried to, you know, I'm like so horrified and my there's a lawyer pursuing the other investigation, but it's just kind of like, this is what happens. Mm -hmm. So it's just like, you know, I can't believe this is what happens.
0: Yeah. And, and just looking through um, to, to have a, a stock photo to go with a poem just for social media on Tuesday when it comes out. I just went to the stock photo place and typed in "Homelessness, and just you know how many photographs and how I don't know, like people just going out and taking photos of it for stock photograph I mean, it, it just there's something weird about it that just is wrong, you know, on every level. Um, but anyway, this is a beautiful poem, what, what you did with this. Um, 20 photos, um, just heartbreaking and beautiful, too. 20 photos from police records of his last night alive. Why don't you go ahead and read that?
5: Okay, thanks. Um, 20 photos from police records of his last night alive. And then there's a quote from the National Coalition for the Homeless. The criminal criminalization of homelessness makes the struggle to stay to survive on the streets even more difficult. And so here's the poem. The sadness lands at night, a heavy bird standing above your ribs, the weight of its body dropping down through its legs and into your core, making it hard to breathe. Sadness leans against the interior of a tunnel along an underpass, you suddenly recognize As the I-17 at Thunderbird, only a couple miles from your house. A black backpack with orange straps, a knit blanket, big gulp cups, a cardboard box, and a pink plastic crate. Graffiti that has sprayed the cement into a cloud. Photos 15, 16, and 17, your son's face. The 18th is back head hung to chest in resignation, a hoodie, wrists clasped and handcuffs, his left palm and fingers circling his right thumb like his hands are comforting each other. Walk off the sadness, spot a hawk perched on your rooftop AC unit where a little bird dives and screams at the hawk who just sits there like patriarchy, like an American eagle possibly the one on a dollar bill until it squawks once then lifts into the air the small bird in its talons
0: yeah thanks so much for sharing that Susan a beautiful and heartbreaking poem um that that image at the end especially 20 photos from police records of his last night alive thanks for sharing that and for joining us thank you yep take care
5: thanks for giving voice
0: of course that was Susan vespoli once again and if you want to learn more about that story um you can find her um rattlecast was about about a month ago I think it was march twenty sixth or so so that would have been like a, episode one thirty five ish um yeah so a whole book of poems about adam um and now really quick let let me do um our poem so so this was my prompt poem. And, and I'm gonna, I reversed my New Year's resolution, if you remember, was to take poetry seriously and not just write quick poems um, right before the, the rattle cast. But I found out that if I allow myself not to write a poem, then I won't. <laughs> and so, um, so that kind of backfired. So I'm going to do the opposite once again. And I'm going to share a poem no matter how little time I have to write one. And this, is, um, this goes back to uh, maybe two years ago we had a poem um, when um, – um, William Trouberg was on. He has the old guy superhero poems. And I had a poem um, written from that prompt that week about um, uh, Poetry Man is a superhero. And so, um, and people like that poem. And so ask for more. So in my back of my head, I was like, hey, write some Poetry Man poems. So um, here is Poetry Man, the superhero. Poetry Man picks up the portable Chekhov. And um, oops, let me see. So this is, uh, this is the prompt poem for this week. I have the portable Chekhov right here as well. Poetry man picks up the portable Chekhov, and already his mind's eye is buzzing at the thought of it. Anton in his wool trousers, somehow heftable broad arms buckled around folded knees, an ergonomic handle sprouting from his back. Would he be alert in the posture of a briefcase, head out like a hood ornament? How much would he weigh? A tall man for his day, over six feet, but made portable by the magic of poetry. Ah, poetry. But this is prose, and Poetry Man tingles at the thought of all that space. He opens the table of contents to find the shortest of shorts, but every list is a list poem, and every string of words is a gem. A calamity at the mill, Sergeant Pishibayev, the chameleon daydreams heartache. An encounter with a letter, the kiss, Anna on the neck, and in the, ca- in the cart, at home, the man in a shell gooseberries about love. The darling lady with a pet dog at Christmas time in the ravine. Overwhelmed at the thought of it, Poetry Man closes the book. There's Poetry Man trying to read the portable Chekhov. And then the psycho uh, for today um, was based on this story, which I found really interesting. So this is from MIT. And researchers at MIT this week published about. um finding a new way to do desalinization, which might have great implications just for the the world in general. Usually um, with desalinization, you have to force water at really high pressure through really, um, you know, um, filters. And so the filters need to be changed, and it takes a lot of energy to um, force the water through it. Like you have to actually create a lot of force through pumps to pump the water through these filters. But uh, these researchers at MIT have found a new system where they use um, basically an electric field. It's called um, ion concentration polarization. And they have this briefcase-size um, um, desalination machine. Um, it only weighs, I think they said it weighs 20 pounds. And um, and you can run it on a solar panel of 20 watts an hour. That's it. And it will filter and make you a liter of water for, for 20 watts. And um, so amazing for... Um, you know, people in places are having trouble finding water and just amazing in the future. Like imagine refilling our aquifers, you know, I mean, the California has a huge aquifer that's just land sinking in the, in the Central Valley because we've pulled so much water out. Imagine reversing that and having a pipe of ocean water going in um, that's desalinated um, at a very cheap price, too. Um, so it's, it could be an amazing thing for the future if um, it can scale up. But even if it doesn't scale up, it works in this small scale. So that's pretty cool. And this was my Saiku about it, just thinking about the way the world changes. Um, here's the Saiku for the day. Spring rain, every salt road's history. Spring rain, every salt road's history. That is your PsyCoup for today. And that is the show for today. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. It was a wonderful one. I loved Erin Murphy. Um, great to talk to Susan Vespoli again. She's just a wonderful human being. Um, and early on um, Sarah with that first poem Was great too And all the open lines I've Just everything is always fun I appreciate it um, And I'm glad You could be here with us So next week's guest Is going to be One of my favorite poets Chris Anderson He's a Catholic deacon His most recent book Is Light When It Comes He has two books It's one of the last books I blurbed Um the, the next thing always belongs. Um, and he's just a wonderful poet. Um, he's retired from teaching and, and taking more time to write now. And um, he has a great newsletter every Sunday, too. Um, but his most recent book is The Light, Light When It Comes. That is Chris Anderson for Rattlecast number 143. And as we mentioned, the, the prompt I guess I should put that on the screen before we go the prompt was to um, write a demi sonnet. And so, of course, we talked all about demi-sonnets all episodes. So that is your prompt for this week, write a demi-sonnet. And then we'll be joining with uh, Chris Anderson, this week's guest on the Rattlecast coming up, 143, Sunday, May 8th, the regular time, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I will talk to you soon. Goodbye.